All right, First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You think about Peter. We actually know a lot about Peter. Unlike other authors, once we get to this first letter of Peter, well, we've already seen him in the book of Acts. We've already read about him and his experiences in the gospel. There's much to learn and to know already about Peter. So it helps going into this book. We've got all that background. I'll remind you of a few things, both tonight and Sunday morning. But we know Peter. You know, he's almost like one of us. There's something endearing about this foot-and-mouth apostle that we can relate to. And we can look at Peter and, and see, wow, his, his holiness and his, how the Lord has really anointed and, and sanctified him. That, that will come out so profoundly in this letter, and yet he's the big fisherman. And we look at him and go, yeah, I, I, I get that, I can relate to that. Peter, he, he was first brought to Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 42, by his brother Andrew. Andrew, who was a disciple of John the Baptist, uh, heard about Jesus, heard Jesus teach, and said, we think we found the Messiah. He goes and he gets Peter, and he says, come on, you got to meet this guy. Brings him to Jesus, and John 1.42 says, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, Shimon, in the Hebrew. You are Shimon, son of Johanan. You shall be called Petros. Or Cephas. Cephas would be the the Greek or or Petros. It's translated Peter. Peter's given name was Shimon. Now, if you don't know, this is interesting. Shimon in the Hebrew means sandy. Right? Or or desert. So it speaks of a a desert sand. That's kind of the description of, of Shimon. But Jesus called him Petros, which means pebble. So that's already an upgrade. You know, Sandy to now to pebble, we could call him Sandy, or Rocky, which is what I like to call Peter. And what's marvelous is Peter pretty quickly left behind Shimon. He left the shifting sands of his previous life to stand on the rock, though he himself would only be a little rock still. He had a piece of the rock, and he would stand there on the rock, on that solid ground. He went from Sandy to Rocky by the word of the rock. Jesus Christ. And that's the way it is. Before we go any further than just his name at the beginning of the letter, and by the way, let me just side note here, Peter, who wrote the first letter of Peter? Peter. It's the first word, you know, of the whole letter. And then the pontificating, pipe-smoking, professorial scholars, they come along and they say, This is too intelligent to have been written by Peter. I know it says Peter, but I know better. It must be pseudo-Peter. They do this all the time, by the way. Many different books. There are those who have proposed a pseudo-Isaiah, a pseudo-Paul, a pseudo-Peter. That is, someone who took Peter's name and wrote the letter using that name so that it would get wider circulation. There's a problem with that. And the problem is it's a deception. And God doesn't deceive. God is not a man that He can lie, is He? 
The Bible tells us He does not lie. If anyone asks you, is there anything God can't do? Say, yeah, He can't lie. So He would not use a letter that begins with a lie, no matter how well-intentioned. You can tell me that, yeah, but maybe someone in the first century said, oh, but if I attach Peter's name, more people will read this and it will bless the church. They may even have had, someone might have good intentions to do something like that. But mark this, God would not put it in His holy inspired word if it was via a deception. So that alone just wipes out this whole idea of pseudo-Peter. Any more than I am pseudo-Rick. And the real Rick is lurking around in the parking lot somewhere. Come on. This was written by Peter. Yeah, what about the intelligence of the letter? Well, we'll get there. But Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, changed by Jesus Christ, going from Shimon, shifty, sandy ground, to Peter, Little Rock, on the rock, he he now has some stability. And that's what happens in our lives when we give our lives to Jesus. He removes us from the shifting sands of uncertainty and He places us on the foundation which is Jesus Himself. He brings us to the place of the rock. And like Peter, oh, He may not rename you, but He certainly renames your identity. You have a whole new identity. Eventually He's going to give you a new name. A name that only you and He know. Oh, that's so cool. A secret pal name. You know, I'm going to have one with Jesus. And so will you. But he, he renatures us, if you will. To be a follower of Jesus is different than any other following on earth. You can follow all kinds of, of people or ideas or philosophies or teachings, but to follow Jesus is not about aligning yourself with some kind of idiosyncratic teaching method. To follow Jesus is to become like Jesus. We will never be Jesus because there's only one God and you're not Him and neither am I. But we become like Him. Our nature begins to change and to be altered because we're in His presence. We're around Him. As Paul wrote in Romans 8.29, those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that we would be, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We are called to look like Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus. And another thing that I think is marvelous about Peter, for all his ups and downs, is his ups and downs always have an upward trajectory. You know, he, he does get better. He still slips up as he goes, like you do, like I do. But it's a constant moving up. Sometimes we read Paul. And and from the moment that that Paul was called by Jesus and his life transformed, it it seems as with Paul, boy, he just exploded in his sanctification and saintliness. Peter, it's just this, this move upward. I can relate to that. And I like that about Peter. We see him become more and more and more like Jesus throughout his life. And that's the key to becoming more like Jesus is just simply being with Jesus. Because the more you're with Him, the more you're going to be like Him and the more solid will be your footing in Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, You are Peter, pebble. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And the rock of that statement is faith. But it's more than simply faith. It's faith in the rock. It's faith in Jesus. 
And I put my faith in Him, and Jesus builds the church that way, builds us together. So Pavel, Rocky, is writing this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as I said before, there's so much background on Peter. I'm going to touch more on Sunday. But but the big fisherman, the Galilean, the apostle, the follower, we read about him in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. In fact, Peter's name, Simon Peter, the names together or, or apart, he is mentioned 210 times in the New Testament. So again, we know a lot about him. Paul is only named 165 times. Among the rest of the apostles, the distant third would be John. His actual name, John, he is given 32 direct mentions. Of course, all of that, and you look at the name of Jesus, just the name Jesus, I'm not adding Christ or or Messiah or all the different references to who Jesus is and to His character, but just the name Jesus 986 times in the New Testament. Why? Well, because it's about Him. And even Peter's letter, though we could delve into background of Peter the man, the letter's not about Peter the man. The letter's about Jesus Christ, Son of Man and the Son of God. So this is Peter. And Peter came along and began to write this letter. He sent it out 30 years after he walked with Jesus. You can date this letter somewhere between 62 and 63 A.D. That's important. Because the writing of this letter is so well-timed. In fact, you could say the Spirit's timing and inspiring Peter to write 1 Peter is impeccable. Writing in 62 to 63, the letter itself was sent out just before the brutal persecutions of Christians in Rome under Nero. We'll talk about that as we go. Nero would come along at the beginning of about 64 A.D., began to blast Christians, to blame Christians, to go after Christians in the worst persecution that the young church had yet experienced. There would be more, far more, and even some would say far worse over the next 283 years. But this was the worst so far. And this letter comes sliding in and spread out to the fledgling church right before that persecution hits. Remember that. Keep that in mind, especially when we get further along on Sunday. You need to understand this whole letter is prophetically sent in that it is preparatory for the church. I wonder if it's not preparatory for the church today. Perhaps for you personally, or or for us as a fellowship, or for the church in this age, in this culture, at this point in God's history, that we need this letter to be prepared for perhaps what's around the corner. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Now, we need to pick this apart because there's more in this single verse than than meets the eye. He says, you're aliens. To those who reside as aliens. That's parapidemos. And this word literally is translated pilgrims or exiles or sojourners. That's who you are, Peter says. And it's interesting, he also uses the word scattered, which we saw back in Jacob's letter, which is diaspora. You are exiles scattered, aliens dispersed, sojourners spread out. 
is how Peter describes his people. Now, that word diaspora is a very Jewish word. In fact, Peter appropriates it, borrows it from its use of Jewish people, and applies it now to the church. Now, don't misunderstand, he's not replacing Israel with the church. But he's borrowing the phrase diaspora. Why? Because Jews of the diaspora, that referred that, that term referred and was well known to refer to any Jews outside of their homeland. Right? That's the diaspora. What does it mean when you apply it to Christians? Same thing. We are a people outside of our homeland. We are a people sojourning from the kingdom. We belong to the kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom. We long for the kingdom, especially the longer you live and the more you walk with Jesus and the more you are conformed to the image of His Son, the more you just want to be in the kingdom. Man, that's home for us. That's the longing, but we're not there. Citizens, yes, but in person, we're we're still sojourning. We're scattered. We're a diaspora. And so it's a good use of the term to give the same kind of explanation. Peter's writing to a people and he underscores this sojourner mentality. That's a good mentality to have as a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't settle. Don't get too comfortable. Don't love the things of the world. Don't lock into what I'm doing in my experience today and my successes and achievements here on earth. That's not the deal. You're sojourning. You're just a passing through. Peter writes to this people with that attitude of people who are scattered. Now note this, they're scattered, he says, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that's confusing because if you look at a Bible map, you'll see that Pontus, the first region, because there are four, actually four regions this letter was sent to, though you see five names, Pontus and Bithynia were one and the same region. In fact, it was called Bithynia Pontus. So here are the four regions that this letter went to. Bithynia Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. So why is it split like that in most, if not all, our translations beginning with Pontus and ending with Bithynia? It's interesting. Again, if you look at a Bible map, it becomes very clear. Let me, let me see if I can show you graphically. So if we came into Asia, if we came uh, from the west, we're coming east into Asia... You first come to Bithynia Pontus. Then you continue to head east and you come to Galatia. Then from Galatia, you would head somewhat to the south to Cappadocia. You hook back around, coming back west now to Asia, and then you end up back at Bithynia Pontus. Okay? See, what we would say is, we'd say Cedro, Laconor, Anacortes, Oak Harbor, and Woolly. Right? No, we say Cedro Woolley. And it's almost as though he started in Cedro Woolley and made his way around the loop. If you look again at the Bible map, it's a postal route. What he's doing here is he's sending this letter for maximum reach, maximum impact over the whole entire area. This area is roughly the size of Texas. It's Turkey today. If you look on a map, the whole area of that this is describing is all Turkey. So it's, it's making the loop all the way around. Many of these numerous churches throughout this region, and there were plenty, a multitude of churches by now. Everything from small house churches to larger gatherings all over the region. And as this letter went from postal route to postal route, it would stop and get sent off then into small towns and the small villages and off to those churches, and then it would head on to the next region and get sent out all over. So 
Peter's idea, the concept, I think Spirit-led, is that this writing would go to the entire church. All Christians in and throughout this region, on this Roman postal route. And so these are a people that he calls chosen aliens or elect exiles. That's what the the ESV says. Elect exiles. I, I learned that this morning. I like that. That's very cool. Chosen aliens, elect exiles. And it's an appropriate title for us. An appropriate title. Chosen aliens. Now you might say, well wait, Rick, no, it doesn't say that. It says aliens scattered throughout this region who are chosen. And if you're reading it in the Greek, that's not what it says. If you're looking in the Greek, the way it's written is to those who reside as chosen aliens scattered. So you might want to make a little, draw a little arrow in verse 1 there. Circle chosen and put the arrow up so it comes before aliens. That is important. This is theologically important and it is personally encouraging that chosen is not at the end of verse 1, but it's up toward the beginning of verse 1. It's an adjective that describes these alien sojourners. They're not just sojourners. They're not just scattered. They're chosen sojourners who are scattered. Chosen aliens. So understand, if you're going a little bit there into verse 2, it's not that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That's not what Peter's saying. Well, aren't we though? Yeah, we are. Because Paul said it in Romans 8.29 that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. So, so that's, that's sound theology, but that's not the point that Peter's making here. He says, no, we're chosen aliens scattered according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what's the difference? The difference is huge. The difference is you weren't just chosen according to God's foreknowledge, you were chosen for this place and time according to His foreknowledge. That the church scattered throughout that region as the letter came were reminded, hey, this is where you're living and this is where you're supposed to be. You were chosen for such a time as this, Mordecai told Esther. You were chosen for such a place as this. I wonder if there weren't Christians in some of these little villages scattered throughout, again, the region that's Turkey today. Maybe someone out in Cappadocia going, I wish I could be part of the church in Rome. Peter's there and the teaching's there. Man, it's just awesome there. They wouldn't wish it a year later. But perhaps some might say, living down in Galatia in the, in the heat of Asia, oh, I wish I was living over in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast there in Judea. Oh, I wish I was living in Jerusalem, the holy city. That's where I wish I could go to church. And Peter's saying, hey, you are a chosen alien scattered. God chose you for where you are to be where you are. And this fits for us so beautifully. Man, He has chosen you for here and now. It took me a long time to learn that lesson because I was always eyes to the horizon. I think I've shared that with you before and Cheryl had to deal with this through our whole marriage. Literally until we started the bridge, every church I ever worked for, I was looking to the next one. What's God going to do next? This is fine, but, but there's more. There's something else. This ambition was in me and I wanted to go and, and do. And now I just, I don't want to go anywhere. You're stuck. I'm here. You want something different? You got to go. But we think that way. I love the personal attitude that God 
has chosen me as an alien scattered. And He's placed me right here. And He chose me to be right here. Just like He chose you to be right here. You might say, why do I have to live on Whidbey Island or, or Fidalgo Island or the Washington mainland? Why do I have to live where I live? Chosen. Chosen. Now, why am I, why am I a baby boomer or a Gen Xer or a millennial or even a Gen, Generation Z or iGen? That's the newest one. iGen. Or me generation, that works too. Why do I have to be in the generation? Man, why couldn't I have been born back in the 1800s? That would have been cool. You know, sit at the feet of a D.L. Moody or a C.H. Spurgeon. That would have been great. Why am I in this generation, in this chosen? You were chosen for now. You were chosen for here. Why am I a butcher? Or a baker? Or a candlestick maker. <laughs> chosen, chosen, chosen. So, brothers and sisters, let's be a people who stop looking to the horizon and to the next thing. If you want to look to something coming, look to Jesus. If you want to look to something glorious ahead, look to the kingdom. But when it comes to life and what you're doing, man, until God says time to go, be content. Thank Him for here and now. And in the morning when we rise, the best question to ask is, Lord, what for today? And what for here? And who right now? I hear people every now and then talk about Washington State. and hate, I just hate the rain. It's so depressing. I can't wait to move out of here. Well, you're here now. Do something about it. In the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, listen to this, we sometimes misunderstand. He said, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. Alright. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We read that and the tendency is to say, okay, so I'm going to start in Jerusalem and move to Judea, move to Samaria, and then out to the remotest part of the earth. Well, if you do that, who's going to teach the gospel in Jerusalem? Some have to stay. And he says, you're going to have power in Jerusalem. Yeah, and there were those who did. And you're going to have power in Judea. And some did. And some have power in Samaria. Some went out to the remotest parts of the earth. And they had power out there. Look at the difference between the two letters that we... The one we just finished and the one we're starting. Jacobus, Jacob, stayed in Jerusalem. Wrote from Jerusalem. Was concerned for the church of Jerusalem and the churches in Judea. That was Jacob's ministry. Peter... It's all over the place. He's a sent one. He's an apostle. He goes. Both are doing what God called them to do in the place that God called them to do it. So again, if you ask the question, why am I here and now and doing this in this age? Jesus would say to you tonight, you are right where I wanted you to be. You might not think you are. Or maybe you've got a little discontent going on, but you are where I want you to be. So embrace that. And until I tell you otherwise, settle in. If I need you somewhere else, I'll I'll let you know. So you're saying, oh, so bloom where you're planted. No, more like harvest where you have been planted. Harvest what's been planted. Open your eyes and ask Jesus, what do you have for me here and now in this place? Someone might say, what about the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. Yeah, literally, Jesus said, as you go. Wherever you go. That word go is in the aorist tense. It means 
Some are going to go, and some are going to go just out the door. Some will go to another nation. Some are just going to go down the street. As you go, make disciples. So, all this, bring it back. We are chosen alien seed scattered across the earth. And God needs you here and now, just like He needs someone else there and then. It's His call. Let's be content with where we are and just spread the Gospel right here. Peter is indicating here God's foreknowledge of the chosen sojourners scattering. And as Paul wrote in Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk in Him as you received Him, having been firmly rooted, built up in Him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, Peter now gives three qualifiers to our position. That is, you have been chosen as an alien scattered, here and now. And here are three qualifiers that impact that that chosenness of being where we are. According to the foreknowledge of God is number one. Number two, by, or the word actually is in, in the Greek it's spelled E-N, in. But it means in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and then thirdly, to or, or unto or leading toward, that is living to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Now, this is incredible theology. It's brilliant. It's incredibly deep in its presentation and it is absolutely intentional. It's in the right order. What's obvious here, first off, is the triune nature of God. I mean, you see that to, to, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. There's God. There's the Godhead. There's the triune nature. Once again, all three aspects of God presented now by Peter. Paul did it all the time. Jesus expressed it. John expressed it. We see this coming across in the pages of Scripture continually. Father, Son, and Spirit, all one and the same, and yet triune in, in nature. And so this jumps out at us a little more obviously, but what's less obvious, note this, look at it, is these three qualifiers are past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. In the past, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He already knew, so that's past, right? Two, or in obedience to uh, Jesus, no, I'm sorry, by, I skipped one, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, or in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that's present. That's what He's doing right now in you, in me. That's why we're still here. We continue to be sanctified day by day, bit by bit, but that is absolutely the present tense work of the Spirit. The first two make orderly sense. Past, present, and then He says, to, and the word to is eis, E-I-S in the Greek, and it means unto or toward. It, It speaks of that which is future. Okay, so according to the foreknowledge of God, passed by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, now to, going forward, obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Listen, the first two make orderly sense, the last one does not. If you just read it and think about it, ah, the big fisherman got stuff out of order, I guess. Well, it's Peter. You know, he got excited, got confused. No. 
I understand the idea of a future obedience to Jesus. What doesn't make immediate sense is a future, get this, a future sprinkling of His blood. Wouldn't that be past tense? Followers of Jesus? The the, the blood that that cleansed us? the, The blood of Christ? I was born again by the blood of Jesus? So how does Peter point this as a future thing if indeed it is past tense? How does he say it this way? And some believe, they read this and they believe, well, he was just you know kind of throwing out a generic idea and to be sprinkled with his blood is a reference to when we were saved. But it can't be because he's talking future. To be sprinkled with his blood. When Hamlet said to be or not to be, that is the question, he was looking out ahead. He was ruminating over choices that he had not yet made. And what direction should I go? And what should I do? And so here, when Peter says to obey Jesus and be to be sprinkled with His blood, this is a future sprinkling. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Furthermore, we were not sprinkled with His blood when we were saved. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 6.11 You were washed. You were not sprinkled. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's what. Ha- that's how it all started. I was washed, as David cried out in, in his in his confessatory or confessional prayer to God. Psalm fifty-one, verse two: Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And that's how the life in Christ starts. That's past tense. That's not future tense. You were washed. Some of you grew up in churches where people had to get washed again and again and again. They kept rededicating their lives over and over and over because they thought every time they sinned, they were back at square one. That's not the way it works. You were washed at square one, and now you continue to move forward in your relationship with Jesus. God said in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Your sins I will remember no more. You're washed. Saturated, drenched. So what is this future sprinkling with His blood? How can that be to be? The sprinkling in blood was required three times in Torah. In Hebrew law. Three specific times. In, in number one in Exodus 24, when Moses sprinkled, and when I'm talking specifically the sprinkling of blood on people. There are other times there was a sprinkling of blood, but the sprinkling of blood literally on people happened three times. Exodus 24, when, when Moses sprinkled the blood on the Israelites at their acceptance of the law. Okay, They said, yes, we received the law, we, we received the blessings and the curses of keeping or not keeping the law, and the blood was sprinkled on them as a sign of entering into a conditional covenant. And we've talked about this many times, that there was only one conditional covenant with God, and it was the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses, for Israel to enter into covenant with God. So that sprinkling of blood cannot be what he's referring to. There's another sprinkling. Exodus 29 describes the sprinkling of the ordination of Aaron and his sons. They, when they became priests and entered into the high priesthood, they were sprinkled with blood. Now someone might say, hey, that could be it. Peter calls us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, a royal priesthood, right? So maybe that is what he's talking about. 
it doesn't apply because that would mean we already are. When Peter says you're a royal priesthood, you are a royal priesthood right now. So again, that's not a future sprinkling. So it can't be the sprinkling meaning priesthood, and it can't be the sprinkling meaning I'm entering into covenant with the law of Moses. So what else could it be? Well, there's one more. The third sprinkling, where a person was sprinkled with blood, Leviticus 14, and it was for the defilement of leprosy. If you were defiled, you had to, if you were defiled and then healed of that leprosy, you had to go through the purification process and then be sprinkled by the blood and the sprinkling of the blood declared before God, it declared to the person and to the people, you are now not defiled anymore. That's what he's talking about. A future sprinkling with blood? We're getting somewhere now because we're talking about purification. You see, even if someone got leprosy, if they, if they were in the people of Israel, if they were in the covenant of Moses, they didn't get kicked out of the covenant. They were still part of the covenant people. But they had leprosy. There needed to be a purifying of the defiling of the leprosy. But they were still Israelites. In the same way, you were washed when you were saved. You're a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian. What happens when I sin? Oh, i got to go back and get washed again. No. But you need to be sprinkled with the blood. We walk in this world and we get defiled. We don't intend to. We don't want to. Most of the time. Sometimes we choose to be defiled. But however it happens, followers of Jesus... Children of the grace of God, there is a future sprinkling of blood. That is, if you find yourself defiled in this world, there is the sprinkling. Which declares what? You're still pure. You are still in fellowship. You are still a child of God. You are still approved. And we were talking about this this morning, and and this example was brought up, and I think it's perfect. It's Peter. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, as Jesus goes around and begins to wash the disciples' feet, right? comes to Peter and he gets ready to wash his feet and Peter says, no Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, well if I don't wash your feet you have no part of me, Peter. And Peter goes, okay, well then not just my feet but my head and my hands wash me all. And what did Jesus say? John 13.10 He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean and you are clean. Then he adds, but not all of you referring to Judas. What's the point? He's saying, look, I've already made you clean. You don't need to be washed again. I just need to wash your feet. Same principle applies. You don't need to be washed again. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're saved. But we need some purification from time to time, don't we? I mean, don't you, don't you ever just feel like you got sin stuck on you? And maybe it's not even your sin. Maybe you're just walking down the mall, though I don't think we go to the mall anymore. I don't know. It's not in this culture. We go to Amazon. But let's say you're walking down the mall... Guys, and you walk by Victoria's Secret, defiled! I need some sprinkling of the blood. And what that sprinkling of the blood does, and this is so sweet and so personal, what Peter is indicating is you obey Jesus and you will be sprinkled with His blood. Meaning? Approved. You got the Father's approval. You turn to Him, Lord, I've sinned. I've defiled myself. Approval. Just come to me. As Jacobus said, confess your sins to one another and you shall be healed and you shall be forgiven. 
And that is the sprinkling of the blood. It's a continual, future tense, ongoing application of the blood of Christ that keeps me in relationship with Him. Keeps me in fellowship with Him. Regardless of the defilements of this world in which I am a sojourner. And that's what David said toward the end of his confessional prayer. Psalm 51 verse 7. He said, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And his word purify is translated there in the Septuagint. The word is rantizo. Same word Peter uses here. Rantizo, sprinkle. Sprinkle me and I will be clean. Sprinkle me, David says, and I will no longer be defiled. And that's the implication. That's what Peter is getting at. It's the spiritual defilement of sin. And as John said in 1 John 1.7, a verse we quote all the time, if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin, washed me when I was saved, and now keeps me clean so that I can be in fellowship with my brothers and sisters and with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? So we have Father, we have Spirit, we have Son, we have the past tense foreknowledge, we have the present tense sanctification, and we have the ongoing future call to obedience by the sprinkling of His blood. Past tense, it's sovereignty. Present tense, it's process. And future tense, man, it is just assurance. We have the assurance of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that keeps us clean. I read this and I say, wow, Peter is spot on. Or maybe we could say spot off. <laughs> he gets the spots out. I'm clean. And Peter just says this so beautifully. It is brilliant theology from Peter. Peter? Peter wrote this? How, how, could, how could Peter... Man, in the Gospels, you listen to Peter, you watch Peter, you, you think about Peter, and you think, this guy couldn't put one theological sentence together. Without messing it up somehow, try as he might, his heart was good, his intentions were always right, but man, he stumbled. This couldn't be Peter, and it must be pseudo-Peter. And we're right back to that attitude, because theology like this is just too brilliant. I remind you that Peter was brilliant. The big fisherman. Listen, i, I got to pause here. Some of you don't think you're very smart. And you know who you are. And I'm not even going to joke and say the rest of us do too. That's not the point. (laughs) I have had different ones of you. And I I say plural. You need to understand that too. I've had more than one person come up to me and say, "I I just don't get this stuff. Or they say things like, well, Rick, you pull stuff out of here that I never saw, and I'll never get stuff like that. Yeah, I spent 15 hours on that verse. You spent 15 hours on that verse, trust me, you're going to find something. But I have people come to me from time to time and just go, I'm just, I'm just not that smart. You know what? If you are a child of God, you are brilliant. You are lit up. You are walking in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, just like Peter, the big old fisherman, who now writes these, these words and we go, wow. And you need to remember. This is Peter. Now, Peter's the one, at the end of 2 Peter, he says, chapter 3, verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand. 
I love that because I see Peter bent over commentaries just trying to figure out Paul. (laughs) But that's not the way of it. That's not the way it was at all. Peter was brilliant. Brilliantly lit up by the Spirit of God. Wisdom and understanding. Counsel and strength. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of this comes from God and is given to you. And it doesn't matter if you're naturally intelligent. It doesn't matter if you have an IQ of 70 or 150. That doesn't matter. That's a human thing. The most simple person who walks with Jesus has profound wisdom that the world cannot grasp. Brothers and sisters, don't sell yourselves short. You are not foolish. Except by the standards of the world. You're foolish in that you are a fool for Christ. And the world doesn't get that. You are not stupid. You are not slow to understand. You are receiving of the Spirit of God an amazing wisdom. Be lifted up. Be encouraged. Do you remember what they said when they saw Peter and John standing before the mighty, intelligent, theological Sanhedrin? They realized, they observed Acts 14... Or Acts 4, verse 13, sorry, that they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated, untrained men, and they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Three years in Jesus Bible Seminary, and then 30 years of mission work, and then Peter sits down to write this letter, and it's with all the wisdom that God has given him. And if we recognize these two verses as brilliant theology, and I do, man, batten down the hatches, the big fisherman is just about to set sail. Continue on. He says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Which I just love because Paul always said grace and peace. Peter one-ups him by adding to the fullest measure. Grace and peace to the fullest measure. As if not to be outdone. And Paul said, hey, if we're going to outdo one another, let's outdo one another in showing brotherly love and affection. Let's, let's seek to be more Christ-like to each other. And let's be challenged. Man, if Paul says grace and peace, I'm going to say grace and peace to the fullest measure. Let's take it to the next level. Let's challenge each other to do that. So Peter says this, and we're into the letter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now in the wake of this inspired introduction, Peter lays out four profound realities that are inherent In following Jesus, note these quickly. Number one here in verse 3 is a living hope through resurrection. The Father who, who knew that we were chosen aliens scattered. The Spirit who sanctifies us in this process. The Son who we obey and sprinkles us with blood as needed as we go to take away defilement. Now, oh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He now has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Resurrection is the basis of Christianity. If you want to boil it all down to one thing, some people would say love, and I would say, yeah, love, but it's expressed in resurrection. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have nothing. 
It is the very cornerstone of our faith. Just listen to Paul describe it. This is 1 Corinthians 15. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand by, which also you are saved if you hold fast, the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the word. Raised. Resurrection. And that He appeared to Rocky, Cephas, Petros, Peter, and then to the Twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom will remain asleep until now, or remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to Jacob, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul says it's resurrection, baby. That's the deal. It is all founded, grounded on the cornerstone of the resurrected Christ. All the Peter saw him, the apostles saw him, his brother James, Jacob saw him, 500 people saw him. I even got to see him. Resurrection. He says down in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And he continues further down in verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Resurrection. And what Peter does here when he lays out a living hope through resurrection is bring the reality home. Christ's resurrection is the hope of my resurrection. If Christ is not raised, you're not raised. If He didn't come back from the dead, you won't come back from the dead. If He didn't come out of the tomb, no one who's died from then until now will ever come out of the tomb. And neither will you, and neither will I when I die. Resurrection is everything. And resurrection is our living hope. Paul says, Romans 6.5, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, which happens when we're baptized, it's a similarity of His death, so, Paul says, we also shall be of His resurrection. You die with Christ, you're buried with Christ, you're raised to walk in a new life. Baptism is this amazing, profound picture of exactly what God does internally. The old man dies and comes out alive. The old woman dies, comes up alive. Resurrection. But again, it's a living hope. Resurrection is a living hope. What does that mean, a living hope? It means it's dynamic. It means it's, it's growing. This is not a hope that's static. This is a hope that grows in you. That that gets bigger and bigger. It increases our faith. It animates our love. And your living hope by the resurrection of Jesus is bigger this year than it was last year. Because it's alive. Living things have to continue to grow or they die. A living hope is continuing continuing to grow. This is why, and it's amazing to me, every Resurrection Sunday, every Easter, we do an Easter message. And usually it lands right where we are in the Scriptures and we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Well, we talk about His resurrection all the time. But we do that year in and year out and year in and year out. Let me just get a show of hands. How many of you get tired about hearing the resurrection story of Jesus? Anyone go, oh, another Easter. Now, I do that when we're filling eggs. (laughs) 
man, I can't wait to be here Resurrection Sunday morning and tell the story again and hear it again. Why? Because it's a living hope. It's growing. Contrast that. Human hope decreases in the face of reality. The living hope increases in the face of revelation. The more I know Him, the more I hope. The more I understand His resurrection, the bigger my hope gets. And my life is on the increase of hope. But human hope is the exact opposite, and I can prove it to you. Think about it this way. Human hope. As we age, year after year after year, our earthly hopes and dreams are either fulfilled or failed or forgotten. They decrease. Cheryl and I were dating, and I had the hope of engagement. And then we got engaged. That's over. had the hope of being married. And then we got married. That's over. I had the hope of, of having children. We had kids. That's done. That hope was like, whoa. And then, and the hope, you know, there, there are all these things, and there are these markers. And when you're young in life, when you're, you're you know, 20 something in your life, you're looking ahead, you've got all these things out there. Which is why, by the way, oftentimes teenagers and, and, and people in, that are younger, they look at the coming of Christ and they go, just not yet, Jesus. You know, wait. Hold on. I got a few things I want to do. Well, that's because you've got hopes out ahead of you. But guess what? You're going to move through those hopes and you're either going to succeed in them and then they're over. I don't hope to be, you know, engaged again. I really don't, Cheryl. It's not a hope I'm looking forward to. I'm not hoping to be in the birthing room with my wife. Again, I've told you that was a hard time. I'm not hoping to graduate one day. You know, I, I have those dreams. Some of you may do too. We have those dreams that you're back in school and you realize the entire semester's gone by and you never went to class. And in the dream, your head pops off your pillow. <laughs> oh no, I never went to class and it's finals day. And you wake up and go, oh, I don't go to school anymore. That's the best. But that hope's gone. I will never graduate high school, college. That's, you know, I'll never be a rock star. That was a hope. It was. When I was a kid, playing drums, playing guitar, I played in rock bands, played in all kinds of bands throughout high school and college. Man, that's I thought, well, maybe I'll be a musician. That's, this hope was out there. Guess what? It's a hope unfulfilled. It will never happen. Oh, well, Ricky, you know... You, no, it, it's done. It's gone. Trust me. That ship has sailed. Unfulfilled hope. So there are those hopes that are fulfilled, but then they're over, and then there's hopes that are unfulfilled, and then you start to realize as you age, that's never going to happen. I'm never going back there. All those, And that's what human hope does. It decreases. But a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So that as a person follows Jesus, gets older in life, the smile gets bigger. The joy is greater. It's not, oh man, well I already, you know, I was born again 40 years ago, guess that's it. No, it is a living, increasing hope. And as Paul said in Romans 5, 5, it's a hope that does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So a living hope through resurrection. Secondly, a living trust in reservation. Verse 4. 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. A living hope and a living trust. That is kept, it's reserved. A trust is a relationship in which property or assets are held by one party for the benefit of another party eventually to be given to them. That's the inheritance. We have a living trust. As Paul said in Colossians 1.12, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have an inheritance. It is out there and it is being held for you, for me. Don't hyper-spiritualize it as some vague esoteric thing. You have an inheritance. You have a trust. It's not like my parents who are going on cruises and spending my inheritance. This is an inheritance that is kept. It is a trust that is there. The word reserved for you in heaven, or some translations say kept for you in heaven, is tereo. And it's a beautiful word in the scripture because it's solid. This is an inheritance that will not yellow and crumple with age. It is imperishable, he says. And no one's going to spill coffee all over it and mess it up. It's undefiled, Peter says. I would add, along to uh, those two things, imperishable and undefiled, I would add unhackable. Because it's kept in heaven. That's the ultimate iCloud. Talk about security. You, 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 can't, you can't take that away. It, God has it. Jesus holds it in trust. Your reservation, your inheritance in His hands. And it's held in reserve, and it is your inheritance to be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. And so Paul wrote Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you will know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. We are the wealthiest people on earth. Alien sojourners scattered, and yet our inheritance is massive and eternal. Nobody has a portfolio like you have in Jesus Christ. And it's just being held for you. Paul says along with that, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. So, we have a living hope by resurrection. We have a living trust in reservation. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have a living salvation by revelation. A living salvation by revelation. What do I what do I mean by that? I mean this. What Peter's saying here is we have a revelation of this salvation that is both immediate and future. Listen to the verse again. You're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That salvation is now and then. The revelation of salvation. The the realization, maybe you'd want to say, of my salvation. It's now. Right now. I know I'm God's child. Revealed. I get it. I know this. Romans 8.16 The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So I know right now I'm saved. I'm not to the position of being saved in heaven, but I'm saved right now as a scattered sojourner. And oh, I get scattered sometimes. 
But that's now. If children were heirs also and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Well, that's now. Then, and I love this, there is an assurance that our salvation will be revealed. And just think about that for a minute. That's not just that down there, down the line, in the future, at some point, you're going to realize your salvation in His presence. You will. But your salvation, my salvation, is going to be revealed. Meaning, everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to know. Those who made fun of your Christianity, those who dismissed your faith, those who ignored your your pleas, are going to see you saved. The revelation of salvation. It's what John wrote in 1 John 3, 2. Now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And there is a moment of profound revelation that is going to hit eternity. It's going to hit the universe. It's going to hit planet Earth when people recognize for the first time the revelation of the children of God. Paul says in Romans 8, the entire world, the cosmos, groans in anticipation waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And it's coming. You know you're saved now. But there's a time yet future when our living salvation that is alive in us now and will be for eternity will be made known across the board. Everybody is going to know. Now Peter is building to something here. We're almost done for tonight. But he's setting the stage for what is the heart of this letter and truly the whole reason why he wrote it. But we come to number 4, looking at verse 6, which is a living proof through rejoicing. A living proof through rejoicing. Note these, these four things again. We have a living hope by resurrection. We have a living trust in reservation in heaven. We have a living salvation by revelation. And finally, we have a living proof through rejoicing. Verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Anyone been distressed by various trials? Hey, rejoice. So that, verse 7, the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. I think that's a wonderful dynamic of our faith. I haven't seen Him. I don't know if you knew that. I have not seen Jesus. Even in a vision, I haven't seen Him. But I love Him. How does that work? I know Him. How does that work? I'm in relationship with Him. I don't see Him, but I love Him, Peter says. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. That's a joy sometimes you can't even explain to people. Why, why, why do you do this Christian stuff? Why are you involved with your church stuff? What, what is how, I, I, I just love it. I, I, I can't explain it to you. You've got to come. You've got to experience this with me. It is a joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. 
Now listen, a living proof through our rejoicing. God always knew foreknowledge that we would be scattered. He knew that. He knew that the plan was that Christians would be in all corners of the earth. They'd be everywhere, infiltrating everything. All cultures, every tribe, tongue, and nation, there are Christians there among them. As the nations line up and, you know, one against the other and one for itself and the other for it, you know, we're everywhere. And you just can't stop us. We're like a virus, you know? We just gotta keep spreading out and there is no antidote but the acceptance of Jesus Christ. And so we're all over the place. God knew that. He knew that we were chosen, but that we were sojourners. He knew we would be aliens who do not belong here. And Jesus has always known this, and I think you know this as well. That as our faith comes of age, He knew as we grew in Him that this present world would become more and more distressing for us. That you would become less and less comfortable here. That the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you find yourself saying, Come, Lord Jesus. I just wish He'd come today. Now again, early on in faith, sometimes that's a weird thought. I don't know if I want Him to come just yet. I haven't even read all through the Gospels. You know, give me time. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you just go, No, if He came yesterday, that would be, you know, great. Come now. And we say things like, why do we have to stay, Lord? How long, O Lord, will it be? We join the psalmist. We join those tribulation saints. Actually, we'll go before them, but written about in Revelation who are under the throne saying, how long, Lord? I think of uh, Koku Istanbulova. I know you were thinking about her as well. Uh, (laughs) Koku Istanbulova, a, a Chechnyan woman. Just read about her last week. She claims she's 128 years old. Which would not only make her the oldest living human being, but the oldest living human being on record, you know, prior to the biblical account, or or after the biblical account. 128 years old. There's a whole article about Koku. And she says, listen to this, it's stunning. She has not had a single happy day in her entire life. She has no idea how she has managed to live this long. She says, quote, Life is not at all God's gift to me, but a punishment. That's tragic. That is so sad. What's different for Jesus' people is, yeah, we do say, why do I have to stay here? But the mentality is different. We know the life to come is better than the best this world could possibly offer. So what do we do? We rejoice. We rejoice. We can't wait to be there. We know what He's done in us and through us. We understand His foreknowledge and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And we understand obedience to Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. And all the the wonder that our Christian lives are. We get all that and it's marvelous. And so when we say, why must we stay? Listen. Again, we're coming to the heart of the letter. Peter draws from an ancient analogy back there in verse 7, the proof of your faith more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a purification process. 
Sanctification is why we're still here. Saved? Yes. Saints? Absolutely. Washed? You betcha. And being sanctified. Continually being sanctified. Purified. Like gold by the smelter. And you gotta, you gotta liquefy the gold to purify the gold. Right? Job chapter 23 verse 10 says, He knows the way I take. When He has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Trials, heat, persecution, burning. Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests hearts. That's why we're here. That's why we're not there yet. It's, it's why when someone says, Yes, Lord, I accept You as my Savior. I call You my Lord. We're not immediately raptured. That would be my plan. Accept Him and you're gone. People be popping like daisies, right? Out of here constantly. But no, no, we're being sanctified. In ancient times, the smelter who worked, and you may have heard this, but they worked in precious metals, they knew something. There was a way to test if gold was pure. They would melt it down until it was liquefied, and then if the smelter could see the reflection of his face in the liquefied gold... He knew the gold was pure enough for pouring and for molding when he could see his face. God is purifying you, sanctifying me until the moment when he purely sees Christ in us. When he sees his face. When I am conformed to the image of the Son to the point that I cannot be conformed anymore, I'm going home. Which means I may die before the rapture because God has taken me to the end of my sanctification process. I know some of you are thinking, well that means the older I am, the more sanctifying clearly I needed. Well, okay. I think of people who are taken young by faith in Jesus Christ. And the world sees it as a tragedy when a child dies, when a teenager is taken. The world looks at that and says, it's horrible. And the Lord looks at that and says, no, they just didn't need much sanctification. I just didn't need that long. I was done. And I brought them on to where we all long to be. What I'm saying is this, God who has foreknown our circumstances, who has sanctified us by His Spirit to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with His blood. He's done all this so that like the smelter, He can see His face shine in you. makes a total difference on the old blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Verse 24, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. That's a blessing. It's also a statement of sanctification. Oh, may the Lord see His face shining on me. That is a blessing beyond all blessings. And Peter opens this up and says, grace and peace will come to you in the fullest measure when the face of God in Christ Jesus is purely reflected in your life. Hmm. And we all with unveiled face, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. As we rejoice in Him, though distressed by various trials, 
we become living proof of Jesus Christ. A living proof by rejoicing. You're rejoicing in the oddest of circumstances. You're a scattered alien sojourner. What do you have to be happy about? Jesus? Christ in me? Don't let this be lost on you. Fellow Christians, your rejoicing is your witness in the world. Your joy in the Lord is proof to a very cynical world that something's going on in your life that's different. Don't hide the joy. You rejoice and you are proof of Christ. i got to tell you one last thing. Verse 10. He just said, Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Now we're going to back up and probably go over those verses a little more in depth next week. But listen. The Spirit of Christ, Peter says. And Peter's the one, by the way, who busts this truth open. The Spirit of Christ is the one who inspired the Old Testament prophets to prophesy of the coming Christ. I love that. That to talk about time bending, wild truth. Jesus is the one who inspired Isaiah to talk about Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus speaking to these prophets. And they all talked about, and Peter says, they talked about His sufferings and His glories. And then the Word says, and His glories to follow. That phrase in the Greek, to follow is metatauta, which is a very important phrase when we get to the book of Revelation. The glories to follow. His sufferings and the glories to follow. And this is how you look at it. Two mountains. The prophets saw two mountains. They were just this side of the one. Two mountains. The mount of His sufferings. And the mount of His glories. We can compare that to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Mount Moriah where the crucifixion happened. The Mount of Olives where the ascension took place. Mount Moriah where the brutality of Christ happened. The Mount of Olives where He will return in glory. The sufferings and the glories to follow. But if you stand at a certain location in Jerusalem and you look at Mount Moriah, you can see on the other side of it the Mount of Olives. But it doesn't look like there's anything in between. It looks like it's just one mountain. What's in between? The Kadrome Valley. What the prophets didn't see and didn't understand and what became fully revealed, Paul talks about this, Peter, the rest of the apostles, is the valley between the mountains. Between the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, there is a great valley. You know what I would call this valley? The valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will... 
dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know in the 23rd Psalm there is only one thing that's future tense? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The glory is to follow. Guess what the rest of the psalm is? It's the valley of the shadow of death. Now I, I have always separated these things out. But lying down in green pastures, guess where the green pastures are? The valley of the shadow of death. He leads me beside quiet waters. Where are the quiet waters? In the valley of the shadow of death. That's where we walk. He guides me in paths of righteousness through the valley of the shadow of death. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Where? In the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is leading us through the valley. The church age is the valley between the sufferings and the glories to follow. You know what happens in the valley of the shadow of death following the sufferings of Christ? Sufferings of His people. And yet, when He walks with us, green pastures, quiet waters, a full table in the valley of the shadow of death. That is now. My friends, 1 Peter is a letter for the valley. This is a letter for the valley of the shadow of death. Everything that he tells us in the first nine verses and and on into about verse 12, but especially the first nine verses, it's just, wow, wonderful, glorious, marvelous, encouraging, foundational, building, uplifting. It's marvelous. It's all of that. And then he starts to get into the real reason for the letter. The theme of the letter, if you will, which we know what the theme is. Because he uses a word, actually it's two words that are synonyms, that he will use together 15 times in this letter, which is five times more than any other letter in the New Testament. This theme is big in 1 Peter, as compared to anywhere else. This is It's clearly the theme of 1 Peter. And those two words come back Sunday, and I'm going to tell you what they are. But for now, I'm going to leave you with what Peter says at the end as he closes out the teaching of this letter, over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, listen, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we're in the valley. And this letter is going to meet us right there in the valley. And if you feel scattered, if you're like an alien, a sojourner, you just don't feel like you belong here, don't forget, you are chosen of God, not only in the past, not only for the future, but you are chosen of God right here, right now, at this end of the valley of the shadow of death as we head toward the glories to follow as we move toward life. As Peter declares, we are a royal priesthood, right? And again, as the one-time brave Mordecai said to the one-time Queen Esther, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Father, you meet us in the valley of the shadow of death. And what is remarkable to me is you make it beautiful. It's lovely. The quiet waters, the green pastures, the table you spread right here in the valley of the shadow of death is a beautiful, marvelous thing. And it allows us, Father, to actually consider the value and the blessing of suffering.
And Father, I pray that You will prepare our hearts for that as we come to it on Sunday. For tonight, Lord, would You just encourage the saints. Fill us up with the joy of the foundation on which we stand. All that You knew ahead of time, Father. All that You're doing in our lives right now, Holy Spirit. And even the obedience to come. And Jesus, Your constant sprinkling of blood to purify us from all defilement. Thank You. Thank You for the living hope of resurrection, Lord Jesus. The living trust You hold reserved in heaven for us. Father, our our living salvation, our rejoicing, all that You have shown us tonight, oh Lord, may we be filled to overflowing with the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And just as Peter wrote and prepared all these scattered sojourners to receive and understand their place in the world, I pray You would do the same for us in this season. Lord, I believe, I am convinced that we are at the far end of the valley. In fact, my sense is that we feel the ground starting to head upward. We're about to come out of the valley. But there is still death around us, Lord. There are still shadows. There's still darkness and hurt and distress and suffering. And I ask You, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, prepare us for what is between now and the glories soon to come. Bless Your name, Lord. We praise You in Jesus. We pray. Amen. Let's stand up and sing to Him. Thank you.